starting in verse 9. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so dearly that you would plan before the foundations of the world to send your Son to redeem us. And Lord, not only that, but you promised to put your very own Spirit within us for eternity. And your Spirit guides us into truth. He helps us understand the Word of God. He he helps us see the crystal-centric nature of the Scriptures. Oh, he makes our eyes and ears see and hear what we never heard before. He tunes our hearts to the things of the Lord, and we are so grateful. Lord, even this morning, the songs that we sang, we lifted our voices because the Spirit of God has spotlighted your word and your son in our life. We are eternally grateful for that. And so, Father, I pray as we look into your word today that you would encourage us to be reminded of what you have done in our lives. You have changed us eternally. And we pray that we would not quench the Spirit, that we would allow Him to have freedom in our lives so that we would know Your Word and walk with You in a way that honors You and glorifies You. I do thank You for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. J.C. Ryle said this. You know Ryle, he did not mix words. Spurgeon called him the last preacher um, in the Church of England that had a spiritual backbone. He said this, "'Let this be written in your memory.'" And never be forgotten. No Holy Spirit, no true Christianity. You must have the Spirit in you as well as Christ for you if you are to be saved. God must be your loving Father. Jesus must be your known Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit must be your felt sanctifier. Or else it would be better if you were never to have been born. Quite a statement by a very powerful preacher at the end of the 1800s. The Holy Spirit had been to, uh, began to be abused um, in his role. Uh, he knew the church understood, didn't under, always understand in many of the churches that the Spirit of God was always spotlighting the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Word. And we cannot live a Christian life without his work in our life. So when we begin to look at this text particularly, one of the things we'll see is the infinite value of the gift of the Spirit of God, and we can't overstate that. I know in my life growing up, I grew up in the church in the 70s and 80s, and somewhere along the line, we lost the Spirit in in a free agent trade to the Charismatics. We stopped talking about Him because the charismatic movement was exploding in America and around the world, and they seemed to have the corner on him, and so we gave up on him. How sad. The Spirit of God is a member of the Trinity, standing in full equality to the Father and Son, and we cannot be Christians without him. And so this passage reminds us of the infinite value of the gift of the Spirit of God that indwells us. Listen, the Spirit marks our true salvation. He accomplishes regeneration in your life, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And without the Spirit of God, there's no spotlight on Christ. There's no, no understanding, no grasp of the sufficiency, the inerrancy of the Scriptures. And you see why the Word of God gets so abused by so called religious beliefs. There's no Spirit. And listen, there would be no contradiction between worldly wisdom and the true Word of God if it wasn't for the Spirit. The Spirit takes the Word of God and shows us the contradiction of the world's wisdom. 
And this is Paul's point in this passage. We have the Spirit. And so we can see the foolishness of the world's wisdom. One of the greatest things I've always said to the Lord in in many of my prayers is that I thanked Him that He would place His own Spirit within my life. He empowers us to do amazing things. He empowers you to speak the gospel to the lost. He empowers a preacher to boldly preach God's word and not his own opinions or some ear-tickling theology. The Spirit of God has forever marked and sealed the believer. I love those terms. We'll see that shortly in Ephesians 1. He seals us to the day of redemption. He seals us as His children. This is the important work of the Spirit. And He gives us, think about this, we'll see this at the end of the text, if we get there. He seals us with the mind of Christ. What an amazing thought. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to be reminded of the transforming work of the Spirit in your life. Paul wants the church in this first century in Corinth to understand that they don't need the world's wisdom. They have the sufficient work of the Spirit of God. And certainly they did not have a full canon at this time, but it's all pointing towards Him. He'll say over and over, we are being revealed this from the Spirit. And now we have a canon that tells us this is true. Number one, let's start down with a few thoughts here this morning as we look at this passage. Listen to this. Christians receive wisdom from the Spirit and the Word. We always link those together. We don't separate them anymore. Which transforms our spiritual eyes, ears, and hearts. Christians receive wisdom from the Spirit and the Word, which transforms our spiritual eyes, ears, and hearts. Look at verse 9 with me. We know this passage well, don't we? But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's responding to verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, where he said, notice at the end of verse 8, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And that's where we end it last week. As Paul's custom, he is, what he does is he turns to Scripture to explain the seriousness of that accusation, right? He made a strong accusation. If they would have known this, they wouldn't have killed Christ. So Paul uses this very adversative statement to substantiate his instruction. Now, notice there's a contrast between these rulers of this age, this worldly wisdom that Paul has been pointing out, because they fail to understand God's wisdom, and he's making a direct contrast, an opposition. It's an opposition to the Christians of Corinth and those who know the wisdom of God. Now, One of the things we notice in this text is he includes a lot of people in this, right? He uses a lot of very strong personal pronouns in contrast. Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, for those who love him. Now that's a distinction, a clear distinction between those of the end of verse 8 who crucified, (laughs) murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says there's a great contradiction, there's a great distinction between those who crucified the Lord because they held to their worldly wisdom, they did not bend the knee to God, the cross was foolishness, it was a stumbling block. He said, so they crucified the Lord, but not those who love him. And now notice as you look down in the next couple of verses how often he uses these personal pronouns to show the contrast. 
Notice in verse 10, he says, for to us, we'll look at this in a minute, for to us, wait a minute, that's completely different than those who nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. It's completely different to those who reject biblical wisdom and hold to worldly wisdom. Verse 12, for we have received. See, notice these personal pronouns. There's something different about us. To us, it's different. We have received something greater than the worldly wisdom. Verse 13, which things we also speak. We, I love these pronouns. He could say, hey, this is what I did. I received this. I said this. He doesn't do that. He's actually bringing us believers into the conversation here. We also speak. Verse 15, but he who is spiritually praised, he starts to point to those who actually know the Spirit, who have received the Spirit, and understand the things of God, and then closes with, but, verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. What great contrast. You have people who have rejected Jesus Christ. They see the gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, as foolish, but not us. <laughs> not us. He's taking us down this wonderful trail to show that the Spirit has made a great change in our lives. Well, back in verse 9, we see this quote. It's an interesting statement. He uses, uh, I think, several phenomenal truths from the Old Testament, kind of loosely translated from places like Isaiah 52, um, Isaiah 64, and, and even in Jeremiah 3. We see him take a loose translation from this. And I think what he's doing, like a lot of us, we refer to truth in the Scripture because you won't find this exact wording of this verse in any one verse in the Old Testament. But I love this verse. Look at it again. Things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, when I grew up, this verse was always used to teach about heaven. And, and I still hear it to this day that they often, preachers will take this verse and they'll talk about heaven. And, and I think there is some room for that, but you're missing the entire context, right? This, this is a, it doesn't take much of a quick study to understand that's a misuse. This is about pneumatology. This is about the doctrine of the Spirit of God. See, what Paul is doing is he's highlighting the contradiction between the fallen wisdom of the rulers of this age and a triune God who gives man, gives believers his own spirit. See, see, to them, to the world, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't have a heart change. But the Spirit of God does cause you, believer, to see, to hear, to have your heart change from stone to flesh. Well, we know this is a problem with man. Think about Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 18. Just jot this down. You know this text, but let me read it to you. This is why, this is why there's such a, such a distinction between the world. Chapter 4 of Ephesians 4, 17 says this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. <laughs> Paul knows that the Lord has motivated him to make this statement. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles, the pagans, also walk. And, and then he goes on to explain how they walk. They walk in the futility of their mind. Now, the word futility means emptiness. When it comes to God, their minds are empty of truth. They don't understand him. You, you know this, don't you, when you witness. And when you talk to people, hey, what do you think about God? They may or may not believe in him, but if they do believe in him, he's some God out of reach. 
He's, he can no way have a personal relationship, and they always think he's mad. This is where worldly wisdom takes them. Paul goes on to verse 18. It says, being darkened in their understanding. Their understanding is black. There, there's no light is the idea. The Spirit of God is the spotlight ministry of Jesus Christ in the Word. G.I. Packard uh, brought that to our knowledge, to that phrase, many, many years ago. He's a spotlight, and so when we get saved, He shines the light of Christ through the Word of God into your heart. But not the world, not the pagans. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. You know, that's some strong statement, isn't it? You know, people all the time go, well, hey, weren't we all God's children? No. <laughs> Most of the world lies in the grip of Satan, the one who works in the sons of disobedience. The Bible's clear on that. They're excluded from this life of God, or you could even translate this life with God. They're excluded from that. They, they have not this life because of ignorance that is in them, and that's a sinful, willful ignorance. Paul talks about his willful ignorance. He rejected the truth of God's word and believed in his own religious stance. And he found himself outside of the will of God. And then it says this, because of hardness of their heart. See, that's where the world lies. And so when it comes to the scriptures and comes to particularly the role of the spirit, they do not see, they do not hear, and their hearts remain hard. Only the spirit of God can do that in our lives. I praise the Lord for these things. And the world just remains blind, but the Spirit enlightens. In light of these verses, I just wanted to take a moment and just think about what God has done in our lives. I, I thought, Lord, how can I best illustrate this? Um, of how we now see and hear and our heart is changed and we begin to grasp what you have for us in this life and beyond. So I began to think about the Trinity and the Gospel. And I thought, how different now as a believer, the, the Scott Menez sees the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the gospel different than when before I was saved. So let me speak to a few things. A, notice in your notes, it speaks of the wisdom and knowledge of the Father. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11 real quick, just to the end of that great prologue of the sovereignty of God and, and the nation of Israel and how he ends up this whole conversation that is profoundly um, witnessed and testimony of the grace of God. As you look at this verse at, towards the end of Romans 11, verse 33, he says this, Oh, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? He's quoting Isaiah now. Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we look at this verse and we marvel at it, especially coming off the context. God has given us the understanding of how he saves people. It's not by the works of man. It's not by the bloodlines of man. It's not by the, the, the goodness that he has none of. He has shown, shown systematically that man is completely dependent upon God to save. And then he makes this great statement about this. But this statement doesn't, doesn't mean that he, he can't be known, right? 
In fact, the statement makes us realize that we just want to know him more. And we'll never get to the end of the, the unfathomable, unsearchable truths of God. In fact, I believe all of eternity will continue to grow in our understanding of him. So what this verse reminds us of, it says, listen, believer, you now know some of this about me. You know some about this. You, you know me now. You now see me of who I am. And I think it's a great reminder. Think about this. When you were left to your worldly wisdom before salvation, you knew very little about the true and living God. Now you plumb the depths of his word. In fact, now you marvel as you sit in sermons or you sit in your, your Monday morning with your Bible on your lap and your coffee in your hand and you read a psalm that reminds you he knows where you lie down, he knows where you rise, he knows what you think, and you marvel at him. Oh, brother and sister, you would never have that without the Spirit of God. Listen, the believer now knows the Bible. You're seeing and hearing and understanding things. You continue to grow in the knowledge of God. Listen, you see this hand and beauty in everything. You worship him as creator and sustainer of all that exists. You know that he's ordained your days before there were one. And it gives you boldness to work at VBS. <laughs> it gives you boldness to serve the Lord, knowing that your life cannot be taken from you premature. As you study your Bibles, you start to now plumb the depths of these unfathomable truths, and that truth now leads you to deep worship of him. <laughs> oh, you're a worshiper now. See, the Spirit's opened your eyes, he's opened your ears, and he has transformed your heart and you become a worshiper. Think about this, because of the Spirit's work, you no longer fear Him in an in a afraid sense. You now have a spiritual awe of God. Oh, the world fears God. They really do. They certainly will use His name in vain, but in, in reality, in the back of their minds, because Romans 2.15 says He's written His truth of Himself on all the hearts of men, they fear Him. They have not a right relationship with him, but not us. See, you have a grand and glorious view of God now. You see him completely different. You hear and listen to the word intently. You have a heart that is no longer of stone, but of flesh, so you can love him. And oh, could we go on and on about our Father in heaven, but let me sum it up with this. He is our, listen to this, Abba, Father. What a statement. What a statement of intimacy, isn't it? He's the one we can, in a spiritual sense, curl up in his lap and say, Oh, Father, I need your help. There is no fear of an Abba Father. See, now the eye has seen, the ear has heard, the heart has been changed to a God that once was feared or just at least used in a swear word. Now you trust your life with him. What a statement, isn't that? B, it speaks of Christ and his gospel. I could go on and on about the Father, but I have to move on. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. A very familiar text of those who love the sovereignty of God. But right in the middle of it, this, this highlighted passage of, of this crystal central nature of Christ in our relationship. Verse 9, Ephesians 1 starts this way. He made known to us, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions, listen to the, the greatness of our God, which he purposed in him that would be Christ. 
with a view of an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Go, what does that mean? We'll look at the next phrase. That is, all things are summed up in Christ. So God, in his great mystery that's now been revealed, is not a mystery to the believer anymore. He's revealed the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, everything I've done has now pointed to him. He shares my glory. If you see him, you see me. He's taken us to that. What does the world think of Jesus Christ? I mean, they won't even let you pray in his name anymore. They'll let you pray at some events, but you can't say in Jesus' name. It's offensive to the world. See, but here, everything we believe is now summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. In him also we've attained an inheritance, having been predestined, predetermined according to God's purpose, right? Who works all things after the counsel of will. To the end that we first hoped in Christ. That's where everything changed. That's where we started to see spiritually. We started to hear spiritually. And our heart was changed. All comes to the praise of glory. So before salvation, Jesus was just a mystery to you. Like, who is this guy? The world thinks that he's a philanthropist. You know, a really good guy. It was unfair what they did to him. There's a lot of the world thinks that. Some of the world thinks he's some kind of prophet or, or someone that had a close relationship with God, but the world rejects him as God, don't they? But not you. See, the Spirit of God helped you understand John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. See, that's what changes the Spirit helps us see things we've never seen before. Now as a believer, you see Christ in everything, don't you? You bring everything to him. You bring your needs, your thoughts, your fears. You bring your worship, your praise. In fact, you understand God because of him. John 1.18 says he's the explanation of the Father. You understand that he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. You see him as the fullness of God, dwelling in bodily form, Colossians 2, 8, and 9. Hebrews 1, you believe this, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of the God Almighty. You see, Jesus Christ is your only hope. See, what the Spirit does is he's taken away the veil in Christ. He's taken the scales off, and now you look at your Bible with a biblical theology, don't you? You see Christ from the beginning because Colossians says he's the creator. So when you read Genesis 1, you see Jesus Christ as creator. You see him as the ultimate plan when man falls. And, and, and there the promise of the son who will crush the head of the serpent. In fact, as you study your Bible, you see the progression of the Old Testament scripture all flowing towards the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what I mean? You now see what you did not see before. You now hear what you did not hear before. And your ears are open. Your heart is now a heart of flesh that loves the Lord. You know that he is the only way to the Father. Just think at his name. We sing the songs all the time. At his name. And, and the Bible tells us that his name, every knee will bow. But what's great about those who have received the Spirit, every salvation, is your heart's knee bowed now. 
it will not be forced to bow when he makes his great appearance someday. Oh, your heart, the knee of your heart is already bowed to the Lord. This is the work of the Spirit. One, boy, I could go on and on, but one more thing. Listen to this. The Spirit of God has helped you understand through the Word of God that you are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Father looks at you in the Son's holiness and blamelessness. Can I get an amen? I mean, come on. See, this is where the worldly wisdom never gets this right. Well, I need somebody else's righteousness. Look at me. Look what I've done. They're blind to the need to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and they're going to show up to heaven's gate someday, and they're going to have another door <laughs> that will lead them to the gates of hell because they do not have the righteousness of Christ. Oh, see, the Spirit helps us understand this. Well, just think about how this speaks of the work of the Spirit. If you're still in Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, In Him, that's Jesus, you also listen to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Listen, there's ears, right? See that? You're listening now. You're hearing something. You're saved. Now you're hearing the message of the gospel, right? The gospel of your salvation. Listen to this. Having believed, God grants you faith, right? And look what happens. You're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you stood out on the bus corner down in Ormond or South Daytona or anywhere else and said, believers are sealed in the Holy Spirit, they would say, hey, we got a wagon with some pads in it for you. Don't know what you're talking about, but it'll be okay. The lost in this, right? And when we talk about it, wow, the Lord, the Spirit of God has sealed me to the day of redemption for all of eternity. That makes the believer's heart full of joy, doesn't it? I belong to Jesus. The Spirit has sealed me. He is my guarantee. Notice the rest of it says, verse 14, who is given as a pledge. Who? Who's that referring to? The Spirit of God. So when God saves you and places his spirit in you, that's his pledge, that's his guarantee that he's going to bring you into eternity. I love to think of it this way. I look at a black map, and on it, I dot it with lights all over the world where God has put his spirit, his pneuma, his wind, his flame in the hearts of his children, and we are the light of the glory of God. And I hope in this area, Ormond Beach, Daytona, this Volusia County, that there are a lot of lights shining bright because of what the Spirit of God has done. But he has given us his pledge for our inheritance with a view of redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And that's what the Spirit does. It causes us to praise. It causes us to see and hear things we've never heard before. Now think about this. The Spirit of God brought you to regeneration, didn't he? By the washing and renewing, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he's regenerated us. We were dead in our sins. He does spiritual CPR on you and brings you to life in Christ, doesn't he? He takes the things of God and, listen to this, and he burrows them deep into your soul. Boy, you can take my health. You can take my home. You can take my family but you cannot take my relationship with Jesus Christ that the Spirit has guaranteed me with. The martyrs down through time held on to that. I recently read of an account of a family that 
the acquisitions were killing and they would not denounce that Jesus Christ was the only way. And so they took the father who had seven children and they started with the baby and they ran swords through one of them and they worked their way all the way to his wife trying to get him to denounce that Jesus Christ was the only way. And he wouldn't. And they killed him. And his words were, you can take my family, you can break my heart, my human heart, but you cannot take my heart that God owns. See, we are forever secure in Christ. And listen, brothers and sisters, we look at this and we think about what the Spirit has done. You and I had now see this and hear this and believe this in our hearts. See, we believe that you're permanently sealed. We believe that the Spirit of constantly reveals the written Word of God to you. Isn't that amazing? You can open your Bible tomorrow morning, I hope sometime before then, or I hope you're regularly studying the Bible on your own, and you can say, oh, Spirit of God, help me understand this truth. And he promises to lead you to truth. He's called the Spirit of truth. Constantly reminds us to submit to God's work in our life. He constantly reminds us to enjoy his fruit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. He's constantly reminding us of those, of those things. How many of us lost our joy this week because of sin? How many of us quenched the spirit and didn't make him part of our decision making this week? And yet there he is patiently wooing us to trust him, to walk with him, to, to know his love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and so forth. Oh, brothers and sisters, you would not know this if the Spirit did not open your mind to his truth. D, it speaks of God's ability to change the heart and grant wisdom. The Bible says there at the end of verse 9, notice this as you turn back to the text, have not entered the heart of man. These things would not enter the heart of man without God. And we know that God's word cannot enter the heart of sinful man because he's rejected the greatest work, the cross, the son, the gospel. And so his heart remains like a stone and his mind is calloused to the truth of God's word. His understanding is darkness and he finds himself Exclude it from the life of God, but not the Christian brother and sister. Not the Christian. God's removed that heart of stone. You now love him. You see things and hear things you've never heard before. Now the heart is sensitive to sin. That's one of the works of the Spirit, right? Are you bothered by your sin? Let me ask you that, Christian. Boy, I hope we are. I hope you and I are make, almost spiritually sick when we remain in sin longer than we should. I hope it bothers us. See, this is the work of the Spirit. <laughs> he wants us to be sensitive to sin. And yes, as a Christian, there's new battles, right? There's dying daily to self. We have to do that, right? Self just, it, it wakes up in the morning, goes, hey, I'm here, let's go, let's think about me. We gotta battle that, right? We gotta put Christ first so then our husbands and our wives and our children all become part of that crystal-centric life. We have to battle that. We're not saying that that's not true, but the Spirit's in the middle of that. He's intertwined now with our heart, leading us to faithfulness, leading us to our God and Father and, and, and our Savior who will never forsake us. Oh, the world can't understand this because they still have a heart of stone. Notice that the last phrase there, he says, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And certainly this 
would encompass many things. I think this encompasses repentance. The world doesn't know repentance. God has prepared in, in the past for us to repent. I'm so glad God did that for Scott Manaz. I'm going to bring you to repentance in 1970. And you're going to fall on your knees and believe in my son. See, he does that. He's prepared that for us. He's prepared the spirit to indwell me for eternity. He's given me an understanding of the word. He's given me the fruit of the spirits. He draws me into obedience. He has a plan for my life, and it certainly contains even eternity. And I know this verse has been used for heaven much, and certainly that is a part of it, but he does prepare those things. But all of that that precedes repentance and indwelling and understanding God's word and walking with him is all things God has for those who receive the Spirit. But let it remind us, let the word remind us of this intimate relationship the Spirit has brought us in with God the Father. He has not forgotten you, brother or sister, in your time of trial and your difficulty. And for some, maybe at home, we're going to be watching here and they're not well. They're struggling with illness. He's not left you alone. He has a plan. <laughs> and it can't be nullified. He'll fulfill it just as he promised. And he'll bring us into this final resting place with him in all of eternity. Because God loves us. The verse there at the end says, All that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul loved this verse. You know why you know this? Because he quotes it here, and then guess where else he quotes it? Very similar, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. It's very similar, isn't it? He loved this verse, and he used it in many messages, in many writings, and as he taught the early church. Now, this last phrase in verse 9 teaches us that God's the author of salvation, and the result is we love him. And God is proving himself to us through the word. And look, you now have spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, and a spiritual heart. Second thought. The gift of the Spirit and his spotlight instruction. The gift of his Spirit and his spotlight instruction. Many years ago, I read J.I. Packer on the spotlight ministry of the Spirit, and it's always impacted me. But look at verse 10 with me as we think about this thought. Verse 10. For to us, God revealed them. For through the Spirit, and for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For to us God reveals them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. Now, the Greek syntactical structure here is an interesting one. It, it opens with this um, strong prepositional phrase to highlight that there's something different right here. See, to the world, the ones who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones who still today crucify him in the sense that they reject him, they don't see, they don't hear, and they remain hard-hearted. So here he says, he wants to start this out and say, but to us, and see, this, this makes sense, and the sentence structure makes it emphatic, right? It says, to us, right? There's a great contrast to those who believe the truth of God's word through the help of the Spirit. And the pronoun is, is to show that the worldly wisdom is limited to the world. But the apostles and their helpers, and I think all believers here, it's not limited to us. The Word of God is there for us. The Spirit is there to lead us along. Now, in a study of pneumatology, we, we learn a lot about the doctrine of the Spirit. When, 
when pneumatology comes along at the Bible school that's coming this next August or in the seminary, you should come and get in that class. I think most Christians um, possibly are weak on their view of the Spirit. But the work of the Spirit was working all through the Bible, and particularly in Jesus Christ's day. The Lord spoke of His work in a lot of ways. Just jot some of these verses down, and let me help you kind of think what the Lord was planning for His disciples and for us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, it says this, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What a statement. This is how the, the Jesus speaks to His Father that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So he's been talking about salvation, um, how, the kingdom of God, and he says, I praise you, Father, because your spirit, and, and that's what it's alluding to, this is the revealing work, the one who reveals the work of God, you've hidden them from those who think they deserve it. And you've given it to the infants. The one who comes like a child to God. Not bringing anything else but saying, Jesus, I need you. This is the work of the Spirit. Matthew 16, verse 17. This is when Jesus says, who do men say that we are? And Peter speaks out for the group and he says, he says you're, the, you're the Son of God. You're the, you're the Christ, right? And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon the Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is who is in heaven. So the Father who is spirit and truth, John 4.24 tells us, what does he use? I believe that the Spirit of God led Peter to say that. He goes on to give encouragement to the disciples. John 14, 16 through 18, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Remember, he starts us off, he says, don't, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm taking off. <laughs> but where I am, you're going to be with me too. And he, he goes through all that. Well, he goes on to say, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Where would we be if Christianity didn't have the spirit of God? We'd be in a lot of trouble. You know why? Because it's just like things are today. You have all these opinions from all these different people of what the Bible says and what it means. True Christians have the Spirit of God that lead them to the Word of God with right hermeneutics, right interpretation to understand what God has to say. And He's promising the disciples that He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to bring them a helper. And He'll be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth who the world, listen to this, whom the world cannot receive. What a statement. They can never have the Spirit of God and so they're left to their own worldly wisdom to try to get through this life. See why we beg God to save our relatives? See why we beg God to save our coworkers? What a sad situation. They're walking through this life on their fallen own wisdom. God's done that for us. John chapter 16, verse 13 and following, he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, always refers, Jesus often refers to the spirit of God as the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truths. Isn't that great? That's what the Lord does. Read your Bible. Ask the Spirit to help you understand. Look, if you're only a sermon listener, and this is a problem in America's churches because we often are blessed with, with good preachers. We have superstar preachers. We have ordinary preachers. But people often leave the teaching of God's Word, the understanding of God's Word, just to the preacher. And they become sermon evaluators. Well, that was really good or that was really bad. They never at on their own, open the Bible and study it for themselves. 
That's why we encourage you to have a paper Bible. We encourage you to, to come and read the Scriptures with us. We believe that the Spirit uses the Word of God to help us understand these things. Well, for the sake of time, I believe verse 10 is the conclusion to verse 9. See, they can't see, they can't hear, they don't have a heart that's changed, they don't know what God's doing. But not us. But to us, the Bible would read. For us, or, or you could translate it, but to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. The mind is not left wondering who God is. God has revealed them to us. Notice in verse 10 at the end, these are good little phrase to deal with. It says, For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. It's interesting. It's a present active verb, meaning it's a continual tense that's happening. And so the Bible translates this word to searches that there's nothing, and this is what it means, there's nothing that escapes the attention of the Spirit of God. He's continuing to search the depths of God and reveal those to us through His Word. I mean, people, people all the time, well, I got a word from, you know, got a word from God or something. I said, well, you didn't have enough? You need more? You've got all the way from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 and understand everything, and you've plumbed the depths of it, and you know God perfectly from that, so you need something more. And how do you know your more is from God? Such confusion in that, isn't that? I have... I have full confidence in the Word of God. I, I've been studying for 38 years now, preaching for 38 years, been studying since, since I was young. I still read passages this week in Isaiah that I go, I've never seen this before. I never saw that aspect of God before. And I'm overwhelmed with this person and overwhelmed with His glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a word that cuts to the quick. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the innermost division of the soul and spirit. Nothing's hidden from it. May we rely on it. But also notice the extent of the Spirit's work. It reaches to the deep things. You say, well, what are those deep things? Well, I think they're the incomprehensible ways of God in which the heart and the mind changes out salvation. Think about that. How can he take a person dead in their sins, callous to God, futile in their thinking, empty in their thinking of God, and fill us with the knowledge of his glory? It's an amazing thing. This is what the Spirit does. And we, we as Christians grasp deeper and deeper gift of salvation. We understand the spread of the gospel in every age. I think we said this last week. I'm standing in the pulpit teaching the exact same things the Apostle Paul taught 2,000 years ago in the early church. Isn't that amazing? And we don't have to change anything. We just preach the same truth. Because that's the sufficiency of it. And we, never, we never stop marveling at the depth of the Word of God. Look at verse 11 with me. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Question mark. It's questioning whether he even knows his own thoughts. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Well, I think what he's doing to help us understand, Paul wants to compare the Spirit of man and the Spirit of God here to help us get a grasp on these things. Paul's questioning the ability to anyone to even know the secrets of a human heart, <laughs> right? Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately sick. <laughs> and who can know it? But then he says that, but if blessed is the man whose 
like a tree planted by water, one that's got its roots deep in the truth of God's word. There's a real contrast even in that. Have you got yourself in trouble ever when you tell your spouse, well, I know what you're thinking. You can get in big trouble with that line, can't you? Because you don't. You really, truly don't. No matter what you think or how much you think you know each other, you can't get into the mind of another person. And so we can't even figure out what each other is thinking. How are we going to figure out what God's thinking? This is what the verse says. The Spirit of God does that for us. And he gives it to us. And he spotlights it all in the Word of God. Notice verse 12. Look at this great encouragement. Now we have received, not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Oh, I love that little phrase. Now we have received. So I think Paul is specifying that the Christians in Corinth, him himself, and I think all believers, have received this priceless gift. Meaning there, there's something we did not have before salvation, and we now have abundantly. And I think what he's doing, he's offering a comforting uh, assurance here that we've received the Spirit of God, which seals us, and we know we belong to him. But notice he starts off with a negative first, right? meaning not the spirit of the world. He, what he's doing is he's describing the spirit of the rulers who, who crucified Christ. This is where the spirit of the world will take you. Total rejection of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 8 says, right? If they would have known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he's reminding us that the spirit of God takes us from that certainty of rejection of Jesus and opens our minds and hearts to him. Then, he, Paul loves to remind us of the truth of God's word all through, and he uses things over and over. So he goes to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and he reminds us that there's this God in this world that's blinding the minds of unbelievers, right? Um, certainly that could refer to Satan. There's a good debate over who he's referring to or just the worldly wisdom. It blinds men, blinds people, Uh, of the unbelieving, so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Notice this, the glory of Christ is the image of God. It blinds them. John jumps onto this. In 1 John 5, 19, he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So verse 12 is reminding us that we did not receive the spirit of this world. We're not captured. We're not blinded any longer. We don't belong in the, the power of the evil one. And so the Spirit of God reminds us to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. The world's just opposite. They hate what God loves, and they love what God hates. There's there's a tremendous difference between us and the world. I was reading in Deuteronomy this last week, and getting towards the end, and Moses is preparing them to go into the nation. He has seen their unbelief. And he says to them, and listen to this, how connected it is to these verses. He says, yet, in this chapter 29, verse 4, he says, yet to this day, now listen to this, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. See, he was speaking to the unbelief that was still in the nation. In fact, he goes on to say that you will worship foreign gods. He's promised them this promised land. You're going to go in. Joshua's going to take you in. I don't get to go in. He says all this, but he says, many of you will bow before foreign gods, and God will send you to judgment. He's warning of them. 
I, I love this verse because it reminded me that there are people in my life that God has not yet given them a new heart. He has not given them eyes to see or ears to hear. And oh, but I'm begging him for those. And I'm pleading for him. And even today, listen, the truth to the loss sounds like hate. Isn't that true? That's what they're trying to write laws right now, that if you teach against homosexuality, if you teach that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. If you teach biblical truth, you are now a hate crime person. And so, listen, the Bible is saying that truth sounds like hate to them. But to the save, oh, listen, to the save, it's a healing balm, isn't it? applied to the afflictions that the world often brings on us. Oh, we come here because we need to be encouraged, don't we? Many of us are out there in the world. You're, you're at work. You're being bombarded by these false truths, these lies of the world. You're being bombarded by that. You may even have it in your own family. And you come here to hear the Word of God taught. You read your Bible because the Spirit of God is there to reassure you of these truths so you can stand in the day of trial. Oh, brothers and sisters, we want you to stand and stand for him. Notice the contrast in verse 12. He says, but the spirit who is from God, not of the world, but is the spirit that is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Well, first, the believer has received the spirit that comes from God. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. But notice, secondly, God's Spirit comes to dwell in the believer and take permanent residence. Notice it says He comes from God. This Spirit will will receive the knowledge of God and give you knowledge. You understand Him now to be Creator, not the starter of evolution. What's the world think? Watch Discovery for, oh, five seconds. And you're going to get billions of years in evolution and all that. And we're sitting there going, yeah, click, no. Our God is creator. He's done this for you, hasn't he? He's he's brought you to redemption. He's brought you to the plan of restoration and so forth. And so since the birth of the church, the Spirit has permanently indwelled believers. So we understand this truth. Paul goes on to say in chapter 6, he goes, look, hey, your body is the temple of the Lord. He resides there permanently. Where are you going with him? He's there for us. And so there's no separation between God and the Spirit. You can't divide the Trinity. And yet there's this timeless, intimate knowing of our Father as a great gift, the result of a gift of salvation. We have the Spirit. And He grants you to understand the work of God. Look at verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Well, it seems Paul is referring to himself, right? And I think to fellow believers, and, and I think to anyone, you, myself, who proclaim the, the, the word of God, right? He says, and we speak, look, and the things we speak. So Paul's clarifying his proclamation. It's not based on human wisdom. The Spirit of God is doing this. And listen, I want to caution you again. When we study these things here, you go, well, isn't the Spirit of God telling him all these things? Yes. There is no Bible. There, it's being written now as he speaks, right? We have a complete canon. Be careful of some of this, uh, what I would refer to in so much nonsense within Christianity. But we look at this as the, the Spirit of God. And think about this. 
the Spirit of God is pouring forth this through Paul. Paul is speaking this, and it's being pinned down for you and I to study for the rest of our lives and understand how the Spirit works. But remember, listen, ultimately this is referring back to the gospel, right? This is the gospel the Jews stumbled over. This is the gospel the pagans, the Gentiles, see as foolish. So the Spirit taught the apostles to articulate the gospels, what he's saying. We, and these things we speak, we articulate what God has given us through the Spirit. And notice he says we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but to those taught by the Spirit. And I think Paul sincerely believes, and I think so do we, that the Spirit guides our style, our, our vocabulary, our language. And particularly here in this text, we, we believe the Spirit of God is bringing him along, Right? He's creating this syntactual structure of the choice of prepositions and verbs and, and nouns and all of that. And then it goes to pen and we have the word of God. The God's leading him, not by human wisdom. Paul's not going, well, that kind of sounds good. Maybe I'll go with that. Now notice the last phrase and more of a little trickier phrase. Combining, or your Bible might say interpreting spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Greek literally reads this way. Combining or interpreting of spiritual in spiritual. It's a bit of a difficult phrase, but here, for the sake of time, and I want to get my last point in here, um, is here's what I believe it's saying, that the idea is, the Spirit expounds on truth to those who have the Spirit. Spirit expounds on truth to those who have the Spirit. To those who don't have it, it's foolishness to believe in one who died on a cross that would take care of all my sins. It's a stumbling block to my own righteousness. Not to us. Not to us. Last thought here. The believer places no value in Christ, but the spirit-filled believer has an infinite value of the mind of Christ. Well, these verses will lead us into chapter 3, and we'll come back and look at these a little more next week as we walk into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is now going to let us into this passage of the gifts that God gives us. It it is into the rewards, but it's also going to deal with a carnal Christian. What is a carnal Christian? Is there such a thing as carnal Christian? And how long does carnality last? And so this is leading into this, but these are some great verses here. Look with me at verse 14 real quick. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. There's chapter 1, 18 and 23 again. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Well, I want to just hit the spiritual praise thing just for a moment. I know there's several guys and gals in here that you can have an artifact or something and you can go to them and they'll praise it for you. They'll tell you what the value of that item is. What Paul is saying here is the natural man, the one not saved, the one left to his own worldly wisdom, sees nothing of God as spiritual value. There's no value to him. Look at me, I, I don't need this. They put no value on the word of God. They put no value on the doctrine of salvation. They don't see themselves as depraved. There is no value there, but not not the saved, not the one who knows the Lord. Look at verse 15. But he, the person, the believer, who is spiritually appraised, uh, who spiritually praises all things, right? So he's making a contrast here. But he who spiritually praises all things, yet he himself appraised by no one. Here the Bible begins to say those who are, spirit, who are spiritual are free from the world's judgment. 
The world hasn't, you know, they're going to judge us and they're going to try to do things. And if time goes on and the Lord doesn't return, they're going to imprison us. They're going to take our properties. They're going to do all kinds of things. History is just going to repeat itself when persecution comes around. But they do not judge us. God is our judge and he has judged to give us salvation. He has made that decision. He has known us from the foundations of the world. So, so we hear and we see and our hearts respond to Christ in great value. Again, I'll touch on this a little more because it has a lot to do with chapter 3. And then finally, verse 16, look at this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he, would, that he will instruct him? Notice the question again here that's here. But we have the mind of Christ. Here Paul um, must have his Bible open in Isaiah as he's been studying and teaching to the Corinth church, because now he refers to Isaiah 40, verse 13. And he's saying, how can the world pass judgment on God and on his children? And he says, well, we have the mind of Christ. We, we know him. We, we think of him. We speak of him. We hear him. Our hearts have been changed. See, having the mind of the Christ is the work of the Spirit. It's the gift of the gospel. We now think like Christ. To, to have the mind of somebody else is to think like someone else. And so now, e- even in our, um, our sanctified but yet still growing in the image of Christ mind that we have, we think like Christ in some ways, don't we? I wish we did in every way, but we're, we will someday. But we think like Christ. So the Bible says, be imitators of Jesus Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul says. And so we can know this great mind of Christ. Well, we're just scratching this. We'll get back into it next week. We'll we'll touch these verses and move into chapter 3. What do we do with carnality? Is carnality part of the Spirit of God or is it part of our worldly thinking? And how long does carnality last? Should that be forever of a Christian? Or is that temporary? We're going to answer some good questions next week as we look at this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We thank you that you love us and give us your Word. We give us understanding through the Spirit of God. Oh, we would not know your Bible without the Spirit of God. He's revealed these truths. And just like you revealed your inspired Word to Paul as he taught the Corinth church, you reveal the truth of the inspired Word to us. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, bless these dear people, like a congregation that calls ourselves Riverbend. Cause us to be ones who rely on your spirit as we study the word of God. He would reveal to us the deep things of God, and we continue to chase those things till you come and get us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me as I give you a closing benediction?